I'd just like to read this short passage that we're looking at this morning before I get into it. So Joshua chapter 5, verses 2 to 9 is where we find ourselves this morning. Joshua 5, starting in verse 2. God's word says, At that time the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeath Ha'araloth. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. Though all the people who came out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness, after they had come out of Egypt, had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give to us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was their children whom he raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised, for they were not They were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. When the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. Well, there are some things we come across in the Bible that seem very strange to us until maybe we're accustomed to them and what they mean. You might think of things like animal sacrifices in the Old Testament or prophetic visions with wild graphic symbolism and so on and so forth. Circumcision surely is one of these things. That is a bit strange to us until we understand its importance and meaning in Scripture. We see this here in Joshua 5. Joshua is commanded to make flint knives and circumcise all the sons of Israel a second time. And this may seem strange to us again until we look back to the background of this practice And then forward throughout the rest of scripture. By the end of this message, you will see that this topic has great importance. Actually, eternal importance for each and every single person here. So first, I want to break this uh, passage down here in three sections. We see the event take place. The event of this circumcising in verses 2 to 3. Then we'll see the reason for it in verses 4 to 7, and then we'll see the result of it in verses 8 to 9. So we'll go through it in that way, and we'll discover the significance of circumcision as we go on. So first of all, verses 2 to 3, says God commanded Joshua to make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. The people had just come out of the wilderness 
Of course, before that, they came out of Egypt by God's mighty hand and his outstretched army redeemed them from slavery in Egypt. He brought them through the wilderness for 40 years. A generation passed away. They crossed the Jordan River, as we saw in chapter 3 and 4. And now Joshua circumcises all the, the men of Israel that had not been circumcised. He's commanded to make flint knives. These were rudimentary tools used at the time. Uh, we see uh, Zipporah, Moses' wife, using the same thing in Exodus 4.25 for the same purpose. But now they, they circumcise these people. They cut off that part of the flesh on the males. This was a practice known in other cultures at the time, but it had very special importance for Israel. And we read here that this was a second time. So thinking probably about the other generation that had been circumcised, now there's the second circumcision of all these men in their place. Now, considering here, I just want to look a little bit more at the importance of circumcision here. Why was it important that all the men be circumcised? Well, there's a few reasons. First of all, they were going into the promised land. They were about to enter. Indeed, they had entered. They had crossed the Jordan. They had gotten to the cusp of Canaan, which was promised to Abraham as part of a covenant God made with him and his descendants. And this covenant sign was circumcision. And so it's appropriate that as these people went into that promised land, they receive truly that sign of the covenant God had made with Abraham. Uh, often covenants in the Bible have signs. We think of Noah, the covenant with Noah, and with all the earth, really in Genesis 8 and 9, the sign was the rainbow, right? And we still see that today when it rains. God shows us that he's not going to destroy the earth again with a flood. The sign of the old covenant, was the Sabbath, God says on a few occasions. This is the sign between him and Israel of his covenant with them, the Sabbath day. Now, if we look back at Genesis 17, and I want you to turn there, we see the covenant promises given to Abraham and the sign of the covenant, which was circumcision. Genesis 17 and I just want to read verses 1 to 14. There are other passages relating to these promises. Back in Genesis 12, God gave the promise to Abraham. Then in chapter 15, he ratified his covenant with Abraham. Again, reiterating what he was going to do for him. Then again here in chapter 17, he rehearses the promises of this covenant and then gives him the sign of it. So we see... Genesis 17, verse 1. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face. And God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have 
made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So you see there the promises given to Abraham. He even changes Abram's name to Abraham which means father of a multitude. He was going to make him fruitful. Elsewhere, he says you would make the descendants of Abraham like the stars in the sky or the sand on the seashore, a countless multitude. You can count them. And then starting in verse 9, he gives him this sign of the covenant. It says, And God said to Abraham, Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you, throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money, shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And so you see there the sign of this covenant with all of its promises was the circumcision of every male throughout the generations including Abraham, and then after him. Now, this is a fitting sign, I believe, most apparently because, well, the promises related to Abraham's seed, his descendants, his offspring. And so it it was appropriate to have this sign upon the organ with which seed is perpetuated, okay? And so God makes this sign between him and and Abraham, because he would be a father of a multitude. He would have many children, nations of children. This command is reiterated in Leviticus 12.3 in the law, that every male eight days old was to be circumcised. And again, they would be cut off from the people if they broke this covenant. And so part of this covenant was the promise of the land of Canaan. And so again, this is fitting that Joshua would circumcise all the men of Israel as they went into this promised land. Now, another reason why this was important was that Joshua and all of Israel were about to partake in the Passover in Canaan. You would see that if you read on in chapter 5. And Exodus 12.48 had said that no uncircumcised male was to partake in the Passover So circumcision was like a membership card that got you into Israelite worship, okay? So they had to be circumcised before the Passover. But I think the third reason why this is so important for this particular generation that they were circumcised is because, as we will see, they had the faith of Abraham. 
Abraham had faith before he was circumcised. And Romans chapter 4, 11, which we read earlier, says that that circumcision was a seal of the righteousness that Abraham had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. You look back in Genesis 15, 6, we see that Abraham believed in the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. In other words, Abraham was justified. He was saved without circumcision because he believed in God. And that's how we are all saved and justified, isn't it? It's by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. That's how we stand declared righteous before God. Through the righteousness of Jesus Christ received by faith. And as we will see, this current generation that had come out of the wilderness did have faith. They served the Lord. They sinned in some ways, but it was proper for them to receive this sign of the covenant because they were truly people of the covenant, people of God, children of God, children of Abraham by faith. Now, moving on, then, we see some of the importance of this ceremony here. But as we move into 4 to 7, it gives us more of the reason why this had to take place. It's because the current generation had not been circumcised. Okay, seems obvious. But we see here in verses 4 to 7 that there are two groups. There was the first generation of men. These men of war that came out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then there were their children. This second generation whom God raised up in their place. Verse 7. The first generation was physically circumcised. It's interesting. Verse 4. All the men of war had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. Though all the people who came out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. And so that first generation had this outward physical sign of the covenant. And yet we see that they did not obey the voice of the Lord in verse 6. And they walked 40 years in the wilderness until they all perished under the wrath of God. God had sworn to give to the children of Abraham this land, this beautiful land, the promised land, flowing with milk and honey. But these men missed out on that land because they did not obey the Lord. They did not believe in his voice and did not obey him. And so they died under the wrath of God in the wilderness. But it's this second generation that actually went into the promised land. Even though they were not physically circumcised. But it says, verse 7, God raised them up in the place of this old generation who had perished in the wilderness. Now, why were they not circumcised? We could ask that question. Did the people not have time or opportunity as babies were born among them? I don't think that would be the reason. Was it now not commanded by God? No, we see even in Leviticus 12.3 that it was still a command of God. 
to circumcise all their male children. Rather, we see that this first generation was disobedient to God. And if they did not obey God in the big things like going into the land, surely it shouldn't surprise us that they didn't obey him in the little things like circumcising their male children either. The rest of the Bible speaks of this generation, and I just want to show you two texts. Psalm 95, first of all, Psalm 95, verses 7 to 11. It says, For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. See, these were people who heard the Lord and what he said. They saw God's wondrous works bringing them out of Egypt. And yet they continually went astray in their hearts and did not know God's ways. And so he swore in his wrath that they would not enter that land of rest. Now flip also to Hebrews chapter 3. It again describes this first generation. And actually the writer of Hebrews uses Psalm 95 and he expounds on it. So verse 16 here. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses and with whom he was provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Chapter 4, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. You see that this was a generation without faith. Though they had the outward sign of the covenant with Abraham, they did not believe God. And so they perished in the wilderness. They didn't inherit that land flowing with milk and honey. Their lack of faith led them to disobedience and they perished under the wrath of God. But what we see about the second generation is that though they were, as yet at this time, uncircumcised, they did believe the Lord. And God brought them by His grace through the Jordan. He showed them His work again and judges Chapter 2, verse 7 says that that generation served the Lord all the days of Joshua. Now what's interesting is it goes on to say there in Judges 2.10 that the generation after them did not obey the Lord. And then we see in the book of Judges this downward spiral of disobedience. How the people of Israel became more and more depraved till really they looked like Sodom and Gomorrah. I think there are three major points we can gather from this section here. First of all is that faith does not necessarily grow 
on family trees. There can be gaps of generations where one generation believed in the Lord, the next does not. Maybe the next does. All of this is up to God's sovereign grace and election. It was God, in verse 7, who raised up this generation in the place of the previous one. One generation may be unbelieving, like here, and then the next can be faithful people. Faith does not necessarily grow on family trees. Often God is pleased to use the word in a Christian home to raise up children who also believe as their parents do. But this is not guaranteed. Rather, it's the true people of faith who are the true children of Abraham. This doesn't work automatically, physically, as generations go on. Rather, it's up to each generation to believe in the Lord and to come to Him in faith and have regenerate hearts. It's God's sovereign work of grace. Second, I think we need to see here that circumcision in the Old Testament was always meant to point out our real problem and the real need of our hearts. We see circumcision revealing here the true problem of people's souls, and that is uncircumcised hearts. You see, that generation that came out of Egypt, they had physical circumcision, but what was the problem? Their hearts were uncircumcised. Spiritually, they were dead to God. They were stubborn toward Him. They did not hear and obey the word of the Lord. They were enslaved to their own sinful cravings and desires and will. Moses knew this when he spoke to this generation. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 10, he says in verse 12, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples as you are this day. Now focus on verse 16. He says, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. See, that was the problem of that generation. They had stubborn fleshly hearts, worldly hearts. They did not love God from the heart. They didn't obey him from the heart. They had external rules and regulations. They had external religion and rituals, but they did not have changed hearts. You flip, flip to the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah had the same diagnosis, the spiritual disease of his generation. Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 4, he says, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. 
Remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. Chapter 9 of Jeremiah, in verse 25 and 26, he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh, Egypt, Judah, Edom, the sons of Ammon, Moab, and all who dwell in the desert who cut the corners of their hair, for all these nations are uncircumcised, and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in heart. Chapter 17 of Jeremiah as well goes on. And what was supposed to be on the hearts of the people of Israel? It was supposed to be the law of God on their hearts. Deuteronomy 6, he says, These words of mine shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them then to your children. But what did Jeremiah find was actually on the hearts of the people of Judah? He says in Jeremiah 17, 1, The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron, with a point of diamond, it is engraved on the tablet of their heart and on the horns of their altars. And then on in verse 9, he says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. So what is the real problem here? with that generation, and indeed with every single human being on this planet, us included. We are born in sin. We are born children of Adam, who when tempted, take the bait. Sin is engraved on our hearts with a pen of iron. We have deceitful and desperately sick hearts, terminally ill we're stubborn towards the Lord and his word, and we do not naturally seek after him. That's what Paul says in Romans 3, right? No one seeks after God. No one do, does good, not even one. There is no fear of God before our eyes. This is the true problem of the human heart, is that it is bound and enslaved to sin. There's that old man, that flesh, that body of flesh, that keeps us bound to sin. It's not a physical problem. It's not our outward circumstances or maybe some wrong ritual. We just need to go to a different church or find some different rituals or do some different outward things to help ourselves. No, this is a spiritual problem and it needs a spiritual solution. In Romans chapter 2, Verses 28 to 29, Paul tells us who a true Jew is. <laughs> he says in Romans 2:28, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. You see, our true problem is a matter of the heart, the inward man. And it is only remedied 
by a true circumcision of the heart. That is the true need. And this chapter, Joshua 5, points us to that. You can have physical circumcision, but you still have that problem of a sinful, stubborn human heart that leads you ultimately to perish under the wrath of God. It's the problem we all have. We're condemned before God because of our sinful nature. But circumcision also witnesses to us of the true solution, which God does give. He promises to take away that stubbornness of heart, to remove the body of the flesh, to transform the desires and will and mind of people when they come to Jesus Christ, who has made a new covenant. And even back in the Old Testament, this was prophesied. Again, if you look at the book of Deuteronomy, in chapter 30, verses 1 to 6, Moses told these people what God would do in the future. He says, and when all these things come upon you, the blessing of the curse and the curse, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today, with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. And he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you. And from there he will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. Then verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. See, that's the promise of God. He would bring Israel who had been thrown out of the promised land because of their stubborn, evil hearts. He would bring them back and then he would do this work of heart circumcision in all the true children of Israel, the true children of Abraham. Jeremiah also witnesses to this promise. In Jeremiah chapter 31, probably read it often before you. This is the promise of the new covenant. Jeremiah 31, 31, he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Again in Jeremiah 32, 39 to 40, 
He says, I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. And this, friends, we see is fulfilled in the New Testament, don't we? When Jesus comes, he brings the fulfillment of these new covenant promises. And you could look at Colossians chapter 2, which speaks of the person who has come to faith. True believers in Jesus Christ experience this heart circumcision. Colossians 2, verse 11. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. You see, friends, it's by the work of Christ and his Holy Spirit that we can be made alive to God, have a new heart, have that body of the flesh torn off, because Jesus himself went into the grave on our behalf. He died to sin on the cross. He lives to God forever. And he died and rose that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. It's through Jesus' work on the cross that all of our sins are forgiven and remembered no more. And when we're united by faith to Jesus Christ, his spirit comes within our hearts and he begins to transform our desires and will such that we have new desires of obedience to God. And we do truly begin to practice righteousness and we grow in that day by day as the inner self is being renewed. This is the circumcision of Christ. This is what the Old Testament circumcision always was meant to point to. And now that is null and void. It's not the physical circumcision that matters. It's the circumcision of Christ. And so are you circumcised by Christ, the true and better Joshua, this morning? That's the question. Has your heart been circumcised? Are you still enslaved to the flesh? Are you still living in the old man? Or are you by grace in dependence upon the Spirit of God, putting that old man to death day by day, putting to death what is earthly within you, walking by the grace of God. And if you have not received that heart circumcision, well, what are you to do? You're to take your hint from old father Abraham. What did he do? He believed in the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. You're simply to come to Jesus Christ, trust in him, his work to save you, call upon his name, and you will be saved and justified, declared righteous before a holy God. Friends, I want to note here that thirdly, the big point is circumcision is no longer of importance, but rather what it symbolized is important for everyone. In the book of Galatians, Paul is in hand-to-hand -hand combat with some heretics, some false teachers in the early church. 
and they were trying to impose circumcision on people still in order that they would be saved and justified. But Paul says outright, this is a false gospel. This is another gospel. Because circumcision does not matter at all anymore. What matters is what it pointed to. So you see in Galatians 5, verse 6, Paul can say, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. That's the true life of faith there. Faith working through love. That's what God produces in us when he circumcises our hearts. Galatians chapter 6 verse 15. Paul says a similar thing. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. What matters is that you have been born again, that you become a new creature in Christ Jesus, not that you go out and do this old covenant ritual. Rather, what matters is that you've been born again by the Spirit of God. In 1 Corinthians 7, verse 19, Paul again says a very similar thing. He says, for neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. You see, when God renews us by his spirit, we do love him, and then we begin to obey his commandments. That's what matters. That's what circumcision always pointed to. Now it doesn't matter. You can be a Jew or Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised. We are all a part of the family of Abraham if we have the faith of Abraham. And if God has done this work of regeneration in our hearts. Now I feel I have to say something about the matter of baptism quickly. Because baptism is related in a roundabout way to this matter of circumcision. In the New Testament, baptism is something done to those who have been united to Christ by faith. And it outwardly symbolizes the work that God has already done in the heart of that believer. That he has died with Christ and been buried. And that old self is done away with. He's dead to sin. And he's been raised up with Christ by that union, by faith in Jesus Christ. To walk in newness of life. Now that sign, that outward sign you could call it. The New Testament never calls it the sign of the new covenant. I believe the sign of the new covenant, the sign and seal is rather the spirit of God himself dwelling in us. Ephesians 1.13 and 2 Corinthians 1.22 calls the spirit the seal. But nevertheless, baptism is this initiation into the church, which is the visible family of God. And it is this outward symbol of what God has done for us. But it is always in the New Testament given to those who believe in Jesus Christ, who become disciples for this very reason, that those true sons of Abraham are those who have the faith of Abraham. And to give then baptism to infants like they did in the Old Covenant 
is to completely miss the point of heart circumcision. That aside, we also need to warn that like circumcision in the Old Covenant, you can be baptized, you can have the outward symbol, and yet not truly be regenerate in your heart. You could be circumcised and not be a true son of Abraham, and the same is true of baptism. I don't think it would be too much to say that very surely there are many people today in hell who had been baptized in their earthly life. You can go through outward rituals and still not be saved. What matters is the circumcision of Christ. Have you believed in him? Has he made you new? That's what matters. Now flipping back to Joshua chapter 5. Quickly, we have one more point here. That is the result of this circumcision in verses 8 and 9. It's a bit of a postscript here. It says, when the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. And the Lord said to Joshua, today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal, to this day. So they remained there till they were healed. That place was called Gilgal because it sounds like the word galal, which means to roll away. And God says here, I've rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. Now, what was he talking about? The, the reproach of Egypt. What does that mean? Well, it means that Egypt had ground to stand on to taunt the people of Israel, to disgrace them, to reproach them, to shame them, if indeed all of them disobeyed and perished in the wilderness. Moses was concerned about this over and over that as God's wrath was revealed against Israel for their sin, well, what are the nations going to say, Lord, when all the people die in the wilderness? And he says in Exodus chapter 32, verse 12. Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Again, he says a similar thing in Numbers chapter 14, 13 to 16. After the people rebel and they disobey and they disbelieve God and and they won't go into the land. It says Moses interceded for the people. Verse 13. Moses said to the Lord. Then the Egyptians will hear of it. For you brought up this people in your might from among them. And they will tell the inhabitants of this land. They have heard that you O Lord are in the midst of this people. For you O Lord are seen face to face. And your cloud stands over them. And you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day. And a pillar of fire by night. Now, if you kill this people as one man, then the nations who have heard your fame will say, it is because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to give to them, that he has killed them in the wilderness. See, the people would have opportunity to taunt the people of Israel and their God if God let all of them perish in the wilderness. But what we see here is that Joshua did indeed 
lead them into the promised land. They crossed the Jordan, and they were, moreover, circumcised. They were revealed as true sons of Abraham because they truly served the Lord all the days of their life. And so that reproach of Egypt was done away. It was rolled away from them. Now, how might this apply to us today? Well, I don't want to be too harsh, but it seems to me that much of what is called the church in North America has given ground to the world to reproach us. We see many scandals in the church that the church in general, I should call it the so-called church, is full of immorality and the same idolatry of the world. It's full of divisions and hate. Now, of course, the world is always going to hate the true children of Abraham, and we need to choose the reproach of Christ rather than the treasures of this world, the approval of this world. But when the world actually has warrant to reproach us because of our sin and God's judgment on us, that is a sad state, that people can look at the institutional or cultural church and say, see, their God is fake. He doesn't exist because look at how they act. And oh, that God would revive the church in North America as a whole and roll that reproach of the world away from us. But I don't think this should discourage us even because God always does have a true people in this world. He does have a kingdom, yet a new covenant people in this age. And they truly act as salt and light in this world. They adorn the gospel of God. They may be reproached because the world hates believers, but there's really no reproach that can stick upon us because regenerate saints who love Christ truly will show it in their life. And I thank God for this church. I believe the best things about you all. I believe that no one can reproach you because you show your love for Christ truly by the way you live. But Hebrews chapter 3 gives us an encouragement to hold fast to Christ and make sure that no one among us is still uncircumcised of heart. It says, Hebrews 3.12, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So let's keep looking to Christ, keep our confidence in him and consider him. Look unto Jesus, the one who has circumcised our hearts and continue encouraging one another that we would be salt and light and so that no one could rightly reproach us. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this wonderful work that you do in our hearts. 
God, and completely by your grace, not by our works, not by outward rituals, Lord. We could not save ourselves. We were helpless, needy sinners, Lord, and we're still needy today. God, so we look to you and we ask that you would continue the work that you've begun in us. Bring it to completion. Lord, that you would preserve us to the end as you've promised and raise us up on the last day. Lord, give each of us courage and confidence in Jesus Christ, full assurance of faith that we would live as salt and light in this world. We pray in Jesus' name.